March 27th, 1890, Leavenworth, Kansas. A local man places a personal ad in the Leavenworth Times reporting his wife missing. Soon, her gruesome fate will trigger memories of the infamous Jack the Ripper murders, which shocked London just two years before. The sensational case will make headlines all over America. Welcome to Prison City Murders, a true crime podcast from Leavenworth, Kansas. I'm your host, Jana Goodman. Leavenworth is a small city about 45 minutes from Kansas City. It is bordered on the north by Fort Leavenworth and on the east by the Missouri River. For better or for worse, doing time in Leavenworth is synonymous with serving a sentence in prison. There's good reason for that. Whether we like it or not, Leavenworth is best known for its federal penitentiary. We also have the main military prison, the Federal Marshal Detention Center, the state prison in neighboring Lansing, Kansas, and the county jail. Just to get it out of the way, No, currently I am not an inmate at any of those facilities. Warning, this program may contain descriptions of horrific violence which may be disturbing to some listeners. There will be murder. There will not be profanity. Host may hurt listeners' feelings, give unsolicited advice, and be judgmental. Views and opinions expressed are those of the host alone and do not reflect the position of pretty much anybody else. Listener discretion and a functioning sense of humor are advised. You should also know that I am not an expert in forensics or legal matters or podcasting. I may think I'm an expert in lots of things, but truly, I'm just a true crime fan who researches and tries to be accurate so I can share what interests me about true crime with you. As you can surely tell by now, this is my very first podcast. I still can't get used to how my voice sounds, way too much like Lucy in the Peanuts cartoons. What I'm hoping is that you will get so absorbed in the story that you'll forget what I sound like. The plan for this case was to do a one-hour-ish episode, but I kept talking too much, so this case will be in two parts. Okay, 
enough talking about other stuff. Let's talk about grisly murder. Our case tonight is from Old Time Leavenworth. Settle back with me for the story of the Leavenworth Ripper. The following ad is submitted to the Leavenworth Times on Thursday, March 27th, 1890. Wanted information as to the whereabouts of Mrs. Teresa Metman, who left her residence 925 Dakota Street last Sunday evening, March 23rd, and has not been seen or heard of since. Signed, John Metman. The apparently worried John is the husband of Mrs. Teresa Metman. That's M-E-T-T-M-A-N. The ink on the personal ad is barely dry when Mrs. Metman's body parts are found. Within hours, the story is huge. There are reports of the murder in newspapers all over the country. The very morning after John places the ad, Friday, March 28, 1890, two boys are rowing a small boat close to the west bank of the Missouri River. They are just north of Leavenworth, where a little creek empties into the river, when they spot a human hand sticking up out of the water. If you look at a map, Kansas is one of the rectangle states, right in the middle of the continental United States. The northeast corner of the state looks like it has a bite taken out of it because the Missouri River cuts off that corner of the land and puts it in Missouri to the east. Leavenworth is kind of in the middle of that bite. Fort Leavenworth borders the city on the north side and the small town of Lansing, Kansas borders Leavenworth to the south. The bank where the boys see the hand is on military property. That will be important later. I really wanted to go up there and see if I could figure out where the body was found, but the area is flooded. If you are familiar with the area, the site would be a little north of the campground located under the bridge that connects Kansas to Missouri. Picture a steep, rocky, muddy riverbank. To the west is a field where cattle and horses from the post sometimes graze, and the elevated water reservoir system that serves the fort and the city. There are railroad tracks on both riverbanks that go north toward Atchison, Kansas, and St. Joseph, Missouri, and south toward Kansas City. A railroad bridge from Fort Leavenworth over to Missouri sits just north of there. The boys row over to investigate. Typical true crime fans, I think, and find the torso of a woman just below the water in the muck with a bunch of rocks on top of the head. 
The head and arms are still attached to the torso and it's clothed, but the body is completely severed just below the waist. The boys run up the bank in horror and meet some water department workers. They all raise the alarm. The coroner and a coroner's jury of six men and all the city police arrive soon and start a search all over the area. No cordoning off the crime scene or waiting for the pathologist or anything that would happen today. Just all kinds of people tramping around looking for clues. While this is going on, a train pulls up. The railroad guys get off to see what's happening. And one of them happens to be a Mr. Henry Metman. Yes, Henry is John and Teresa's 29-year-old son. He immediately recognizes the body and bloody clothes as those of his mother. Henry appears quite calm and stoic about this and officially identifies his mother right there on the spot. Farther up, away from the river, the searchers find blood, clothing, and a large potato sack, or maybe corns or oats sack, tied with what they call strong government cord used only at Fort Leavenworth. This is interesting to us because John Metman, the victim's husband, is employed as a water carrier up on post. The sack is heavy with rocks and has a human foot sticking out. When they open the sack, they find a gory mess, the victim's right leg and internal organs. Several large rocks are in the sack, and nearby a straw hat with more rocks in it is found. The place is described as somewhat concealed from nearby houses on the post. The left leg won't be found for weeks. Again, the finders of the body parts will be boys playing down by the river near a local hotel known as Planter's House. Planter's House was a large Leavenworth hotel by the train station. It was the site of a speech by Abraham Lincoln in 1859 when he was campaigning for president. Unfortunately, the building fell into disrepair and was torn down in the 1950s. Nothing is there now but an open field. This area between the post and the train station is where most of the brothels and taverns and prostitutes operate. A pretty rough part of town. For the most part, it is still a pretty rough part of town. Anyway, Teresa's left leg was finally found about a mile or so downstream to the south of where the torso was found. Listeners, if you're worried about the leg, Teresa's grave was dug up, 
so they could put it in with the rest of the body. After the search, the body parts are brought to the undertaker. The MD, a Dr. Goddard, examines the body and determines that the victim was killed by a single gunshot right behind her left ear, probably from a 32 caliber pistol. There are powder burns indicating the gun was fired at close range. And there is a discoloration around her right eye and blood in her right ear. There's no exit wound, so the bullet likely ended up in that area. No other injuries to her head or defensive wounds are mentioned at this time. At the inquest, Dr. Goddard also reports there is no sign <clears throat> of drowning. Well, thank you, Dr. Obvious. She's been shot in the head and slaughtered. I doubt anybody thinks she might have drowned. The good doctor's best guess is that the body was in the water two or maybe three days. As he says at the inquest, there was not much maceration. Maceration is the softening of the body tissue in water. Others on the scene at the, at the river will later testify that the body appeared quite fresh but the weather and the water were very cold. That could be interesting to us because she has supposedly been missing for five days. As far as I could tell, Dr. Goddard doesn't say anything about exactly how or where the body was cut up at the inquest. If you remember in the Jack the Ripper case, Police speculated that a scalpel might have been used. They even theorized that Jack might be a surgeon. Well, listeners, my bridge partner is a retired surgeon, and I couldn't resist asking him how he would cut up a body. Yes, eyes rolled at the bridge table. They're used to me bringing up utterly inappropriate subjects. He pointed out that most people in those days were familiar with butchering. So many people could do this, but it would be hard to do alone unless you were somewhere that the body could be tied down securely. The best place would be on a heavy table or the floor. He suggested a hatchet or an axe or even a military saber if you had someone to hold the body down. The best way to get through the abdomen and spine would be to use a good lumberjack saw, which is usually operated with two people. Trying to saw through a body alone is very difficult because the body moves too much. Although it is problematic to cut through bones, the best way to dismember or decapitate a body is through the joints. Even under the best conditions, he thought it would take quite a while and would be very messy. Perhaps another Dr. Obvious. 
A few weeks later, the papers report that Dr. Goddard is considering an exhumation of the body to remove the bullet. As far as I can tell, they never got the bullet. Again, this is strange to us who are used to thorough autopsies. Nowadays, finding the bullet for ballistics testing would be one of the first things the pathologist would do. But this is a different time. At trial, a more detailed account of the autopsy is prevented, presented. The bullet wound is about two inches behind the left ear. The wound would certainly be fatal. When the scalp is removed, there are signs of blunt force trauma. Since no wound was seen externally, probably with a sandbag or a bag of gunshot. Sufficient to cause unconsciousness and even death. It's not reported where the blow to the head was, but probably to the back or side of the head, since he only notes the contusion near the right eye, which was caused by the bullet. The doctor testifies definitively that a fine-toothed, stiff-necked, or perhaps a surgeon's saw was used to separate body parts. I picture maybe an upside down U-shaped saw with a handle and a strong thin blade with fine teeth inserted at the bottom. He also noted that it appeared the murderer first tried to cut the left leg off with a large knife before switching to a saw. Okay. I'll stop talking about cutting up bodies, at least for now. The undertaker does the best he can to make the body presentable for a viewing the next day at the family home, where hordes of townspeople come to pay their respects, or more likely, satisfy their morbid curiosity. Let's take a minute to get a little more context for our story. The Civil War ended only 25 years ago. Fort Leavenworth is still a cavalry outpost. Leavenworth's most famous son, Buffalo Bill Cody, is very successful with his Wild West show in 1890. In just two years, the nation will be rocked by the brutal murders of the parents of none other than Lizzie Borden. The population of Leavenworth at this time is about 20,000, roughly half what it is now. In reality, the town teeters on the edge of the frontier, but it works hard to promote an image of civility and culture. To its credit, Judge David Brewer, who established his legal career in Leavenworth, has been a justice on the Supreme Court of the United States for a few months now. I should also point out most of my information about this case is from newspapers of the time, 
the reporting is sensationalized, lurid, in no way politically correct, or sometimes even correct. The papers contradict each other and even themselves. Scandalous gossip is reported as truth, and facts are dismissed if they don't agree with the reporter's agenda. So some of what I may tell you about the case is my best guess as to what really happened. Also, fair warning, you may hear colored people, red Indians, and not to leave white people out, Huns, H-U-N-S, a derogatory term for Germans. Those terms are in the sources I'm using. That's how people wrote and talked back then, and it's important to the story. Here is some background on the Metman family. John is a 59-year-old German immigrant. He has been married to Teresa, who is 51 years old, also a German immigrant, for 34 years. They have three grown children, a bachelor son, the previously mentioned Henry, who works for the Rock Island Railroad, a widowed daughter, Mary, 27, who has two small children, about seven and four, and daughter Catherine, married and living in New York. All except Catherine live at 925 Dakota in North Leavenworth, about a mile from where the body was found. This address still exists in Leavenworth. There is a small house there. I drove by and it's not the same house. I haven't knocked on the door to bother the people who live there, but I'm still thinking about it. Would love to know if any ghostly happenings have been experienced there. The Metman Place is described as a small, clean frame house on several lots with a barn, chicken coop, summer kitchen, and large, well-kept garden. John keeps a horse there that he often takes to work. John is a laborer with a steady job hauling water at Fort Leavenworth. Hmm, the area where the body was found is near the water reservoir for the post and the city. This could be interesting to us. Teresa supplements the family income by producing yeast that she sells to housewives and bakers and even by telling fortunes. Two great interests of hers are mesmerism, which we would call hypnotism, and spiritualism, contacting spirits of the dead. Ironic, huh? The marriage is a very unhappy one. Eight years ago, Teresa wanted a divorce and even moved out for three months. She came back, but there are frequent, loud arguments. Daughter Mary 
and the two grandchildren moving in a few years ago just made things worse. Teresa is very critical of Mary, saying she doesn't contribute financially to the family and has badly behaved children. It doesn't help any that Mary and John usually side with each other against Teresa. She often threatens to take off and go live with Catherine, her favorite daughter, back east. Evenings and weekends, Teresa goes out and does her own thing. Listeners, I can picture this. The parents are German immigrants and not a warm, cuddly couple. Their English is poor, while the children and grandchildren are all Americans with English as their first language. They all live in this little house. There would be conflict all the time. Just as we would expect today, the husband is the primary suspect. A neighbor is quoted saying that John is irascible, dangerous, and murderous when excited, and it takes very little to excite him. At the coroner's inquest, the family doctor testifies that John had meningitis five years ago and has not been in his right mind since. So much for doctor-patient confidentiality. Furthermore, he thinks both John and Teresa are insane. The police arrest John at 3.30 p.m. the day they find the body. The formal inquest is held the next day, and the funeral, attended by hundreds, is held that Sunday at St. Joseph's Catholic Church. That church is still open for worship. It's on Broadway, one of North Leavenworth's main streets. James Berry, one of the water department workers who was there when the body was found, decides to try to figure out where Teresa was killed. Another true crime fan, I think. After the funeral, he walks north up Broadway toward Fort Leavenworth. In the bushes near a ravine, he finds blood, a muffler, bloody string, peanuts and candy, some scraps of cloth later found to match Teresa's dress, and a set of bloody false teeth. The area would be just a couple of blocks from the Metman place. He shows the authorities what he found. A local dentist will testify that when he examined Teresa a few days after the funeral, the false teeth fit her mouth. It doesn't take long for a political bias to affect newspaper reports and the investigation. The political concern is how all this affects the significant German vote in Leavenworth, which leans Democrat. So there are essentially two competing official investigations going on, 
one by the city police department and one by the county attorney's detectives. In Leavenworth, the district attorney or the prosecutor is called the county attorney. Like a lot of places, it is an elected position. The police want to show that John and maybe other members of the family did the murder. The county attorney, who is a Democrat, wants to show a robbery gone wrong. Depending on the party they support, the local newspapers choose sides. Things get very ugly fast. One paper calls a reporter for another paper, a Yahoo, who is lying and besmirching the victim to get the obviously guilty John Metman and his fishy daughter Mary off the hook. Not sure if they meant that pun or not. On the other side, another paper pushes the idea that colored people in North Leavenworth are responsible. Keeping that in mind, I think it is still possible to tell the family's movements on the Sunday Teresa goes missing, at least up to a point. The whole family had supper about 5 p.m. Teresa left after supper to go visit the foster family a couple of blocks away. The fosters are a respectable family. They run a dry goods store, and they are longtime friends and neighbors of the Metmans. John says he went outside after supper to tinker around in the barn. He saw his wife leave about six. He said he went to bed early and slept until the next morning at 5 a.m. when he went off to work. Henry left after supper to catch his train, as usual. He worked until Monday morning. This is confirmed by his boss. He works nearly every night on the railway as a fireman and comes back in the mornings. Mary says her mother was in good spirits when she left at 5 p.m. After that, Mary says she waited up all night for her mother. Now, other times she says she went to bed early and noticed her mother missing in the morning. Mrs. Alice, or maybe Thecla Foster, and her daughter Bertha confirm the visit. They report that Teresa arrived about 6 p.m. Bertha wrote a letter to Catherine for Teresa, which she took with her when she left about 8 p.m. Bertha says there was nothing special in the letter, and certainly nothing was said about an upcoming visit to New York. An interesting thing is noticed a little while later. The letter was actually mailed, and there was even time for Catherine to send a reply back. But no one really knows how the letter got mailed. Mrs. Foster reports that she said goodbye to Teresa at the door. She assumed Teresa was going home. However, it was dark and she couldn't say for sure. The papers opposed to the county attorney, Mr. Atwood, report immediately on the police theory that the husband is the murderer, probably with the help of Henry and Mary. 
Their source is allegedly Marshall Doan, the Leavenworth police chief. I'm going to read what the Leavenworth Times says the police theory of the crime is. Bear with me. I think this will give you a good idea of the tone of their writing. Mrs. Metman returned home after 8 o'clock, and as too close intimacy has been repeatedly charged against the father with his daughter, she possibly found them at this time in a compromising position, and being a high-tempered woman, a scene ensued in which the mother was struck on the head with some blunt instrument and knocked insensible. The next thing was to secrete the insensible woman where she might not be seen. She was carried to the summer kitchen and there put away. She may have lain in a comatose condition for 24 or 48 hours and did not grow any better. What was to be done with her? It would not do to keep her there any longer for fear of discovery. In some dark and midnight hour, the body was carried to a lonely ravine about a hundred yards from the place where the mutilated body was found. And there, by the dim light of a midnight fire, the hellish deed was completed. The bullet was sent crashing through the insensible woman's brain. The body was sawn into parts, these parts securely tied and weighted with stones. The dismembered parts were carried piece by piece to the dark and silent river. The place is a lonely one. A campfire had been built. Pieces of a newspaper covered with blood were found at this site. Also pieces of government twine. A pair of shoes covered with river mud was found in the Metman residence. There were blood marks on the pony, which was undoubtedly used in carrying the body from the house to the lonely ravine. Then, in typical yellow journalism fashion, they throw out a bunch of questions designed to further the paper's agenda. Why did the family strive to keep the disappearance so quiet? Why did they not noise it abroad? Why this indifference on their part? Why is not the son making some effort to find the fiend and recover that much-talked-of $450. What? Why those bloodstains? The family know all about the sickening details. My reaction to this is calm town people. 
It's not out of the question for the family to assume Teresa made good on her threat to leave John. She had done it before. Remember that in 1890, it is the Victorian age when people were terrified of a scandal in the family. A scandal in another family was fascinating but one in your own was to be hidden at all cost. The part about the money is interesting. $450 is about $10,000 today. The amounts vary, but other people besides the family do report that they kept a substantial amount of money in the house, including gold coins. And probably in that day and age, most people kept a lot of money in their houses. If Teresa did want to leave, she might well take the money and head for the train station. She could have met up with some unsavory characters, maybe hobos sitting around a campfire, and they robbed and killed her. Of course, robbers wouldn't really have a need to keep the body from being found. And if the river's right there, it would be pretty easy for robbers to just throw her in. The charge of incest is vehemently denied by the family and never substantiated in any way. I doubt this completely mainly because there's so little privacy in the house. John clearly isn't happy with his wife, and that's been plenty of motive for many a murder. The campfire may have nothing to do with the case. I don't think I'd build a campfire while I was disposing of a body. Most people would just use a lantern, Plus, even today, there are often campfires in March near railroad tracks. As for the muddy shoes, the whole town is muddy. John hauls water in the area where the body was found all day long. Of course, he has muddy shoes. The rope that was used probably was government twine that John would have access to. However, lots of people work at Fort Leavenworth. The twine is no doubt in many barns in Leavenworth. About the blood they say they found. The materials found by the police are collected and sent for analysis to a Professor Lightman. He is a microscopist, which is just like it sounds, someone who analyzes specimens using a microscope. Now, depending on what you read, either he couldn't say whether what the police found was even blood, much less human blood, or they certainly found blood, probably belonging to a woman of about 50 years. Now, I have to call BS on that. I'm not sure a scientist today 
could tell that just by looking at blood through a microscope. So overall, what they are calling evidence is questionable. The only thing I feel comfortable about saying about the crime is that whoever was supposed to get rid of the body did a terrible job. There could be several reasons for this, bad planning, physical limitations, panic. It is interesting that the job appears unfinished, as if the perpetrators were interrupted by something and never got back to put the rest of the body in the river. Anyway, such as it is, that is the police theory of what happened with some not-so-subtle hints that John did not act alone. On the other side, as I mentioned, the Democrat county attorney and his investigators and the newspapers supporting him are working hard to shift the blame away from the Metmans. I'm being cynical here, but as far as the power structure in Leavenworth is concerned, I think it will be much easier for them if the culprit is a stranger, preferably a colored man or a drunken red Indian. Then they can have a quick hanging problem solved. I'll be a little charitable to the Leavenworth Times, which is still published here. The Times in 1890, the one pushing so hard to support the police and convict the Metmans, is a Republican paper founded before the Civil War by a staunch anti-slavery activist, the brother of Susan B. Anthony, a well-known American women's rights activist and abolitionist. The sympathies of the staff are with former slaves in the area. So it's not a stretch to think that the staff members were honestly upset that colored people might be blamed. They are quick to scoff at any hint in other papers that anyone but the murderous Hun John Metman did the crime. After a few days of pressure from the media and the public, the county attorney does charge John with murder and schedules a trial for April 16, 1890, only two weeks away. Times have really changed. This doesn't mean Mr. Atwood has given up on the robbery gone wrong theory, preferably by a non-white man, his detectives keep pursuing clues that will point away from the Metman family, but they don't really get anywhere. There was a 32 caliber pistol found near the front gate of Fort Leavenworth, but it couldn't be traced. And really, pistols were all over the place in the American West, as they still are now in Kansas. At this point, I think everybody is hoping John will just break down and confess, but that does not happen. And soon, there is a major change in the course of the investigation. 
On April 6th, Mary is arrested. I think most likely to put pressure on her father. But surprisingly, a few days later, John is released. Listeners, as we will soon find out, daughter Mary has been living a double life. Dun, dun, dun. The rest of the story will be in part two, which is almost written. I just need to record it. I'll upload as soon as I get done. The sources for this episode were the newspapers I told you about, mainly the Kansas City Star and the Leavenworth Times and the now defunct Leavenworth Standard. I accessed them at libraries and used some newspaper and genealogy services that I subscribe to. I'll put the details about the websites I used in the episode notes in case you want to do some research on your own. I'd like to thank Orbital Jigsaw for hosting this podcast and Blueberry Support for their help in getting things set up. And to the host of the outstanding true crime podcast, California Dreaming, who recommended Orbital Jigsaw, I want to say thank you and gush about what a big fan I am. Getting the podcast up and going was really as easy as she said. I'm still not quite sure how everything fits together with blogs and websites and Facebook and stuff. To be honest, I'm a bit of a hermit, but I'm working on it. I use Stitcher to listen to podcasts, but as far as I can tell, you can subscribe to this podcast in all kinds of places. I'd appreciate that and a review. I gather from listening to other podcasts that this is important. Plus, it would be great to get some feedback. By the way, I was once in politics, so if you need to criticize me, don't worry. I can totally take it. Thanks for listening, and until next time, please don't murder anybody. I don't think you can listen to podcasts in prison. <laughs>